Welcome to Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holtzworth. Over the next hour, you'll discover how to feel better, look better, and get questions answered to bring out your own glow. Make sure to stay tuned for the whole show as there will be a Q&A at the end of today's episode. Now, here is Carolyn Holdsworth. Hey everyone, I'm Carolyn Holdsworth and welcome to the best of Glow and Tell. It has been such an exciting, fun, interesting educational season and I thought this was the best way to do a recap which is bring you the highlights from the most talked about the most emailed about the most um, DM'd about episodes from our guests over the past um, 12 weeks we're going to hear from celebrity makeup artist Louise Costco plastic surgeon Dr. Armand Simone medical oncologist Dr. Julia Kennedy Chase Burnett, who talked all about body and fitness and lifestyle, and of course, Barb Steinberg, who was helping us talk to our teens. So um, let's just get right into it. And we're first going to talk about makeup. Luis Costco has been a celebrity makeup artist for almost 30 years, and he has worked with the best of the best all around the world. And what you're going to hear in this little clip from our episode number one is what are the trends that he is loving? What are the trends that he wishes would go away? And he has some amazing insight and advice on how to take advantage of all of those. So speaking of which, you know, the pendulum always swings, right? I mean, what was out 20 years ago is back now. I mean, it's it's crazy that we now both have literally lived through so many fashion cycles, so many beauty cycles. And, you know, there are some trends back that that I'm loving, some that I'm not loving. But you're the pro. You're the expert. So I want to hear from you. Tell me a trend that has come back that you're obsessed with, that you think is amazing. And then tell me one that you wish went back, <laughs> that you wish right. went back. <laughs> go, go hit the road. Um, well, I can tell you that, uh, that a big trend that I'm seeing and, and I've experienced it a lot, whether at the, on the red carpet or, not, or in an editorial way is, um, after a couple of years that we've had in which lipstick maybe wasn't so popular because you were either wearing a mask or, you know, on camera, it felt too much. Um, I think lips are making a huge comeback and especially um, almost like vinyl glossy lips. You know, mm-hmm. I just went to see Grace Jones a couple of weeks ago. Well, there's so vinyl glossy. Yeah, you're, there you go. You remember yeah. that classic glossy uh, late 70s disco sort of lip. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's wonderful if you wear it as its own statement like the right. one thing you will have on. Of course, if you're going to wear a mask, forget it. Right, right. <laughs> because right. Uh, a glossy lip is very hard to stay on. But that is one trend that I see. Um, and uh, I'm seeing it more and more because I think there's so many formulations now that yeah. give you a look like uh, Makeup Forever has a great one that's called an ink, uh, sort of a vinyl uh, lip. And of course, you have beautiful ones from YSL and uh, Mac makes great ones. Not necessarily sparkly, though. I'm talking about remember that lip glass from a Mac? lot of pigment, a lot of pigment. Yeah, yeah, really. That's high that almost almost like '90s too. It was. I think we you had a disco lip in the '70s, and then also like that. Uh, uh, video music video you know in the 90s with the girls wearing all the lip gloss so i i think it's kind of fun and i and i see it coming back a lot 
We were just speaking the other day about, and you brought up something that I thought was very interesting that I never paid attention to, about how highlighter can actually accentuate skin flaws. Tell us about that. Well, you know, a lot of uh, people on Instagram, they love to use a highlighter that's like, whoa, you know, it blinds you. and (laughs) It's it's so strong. It looks cool on Instagram. Powder or cream, right? Either type. Uh, either or, either or, mm-hmm. even liquid. Okay. You know, liquid. they have liquid highlighters. Yeah. Um, my point is, as you become someone, not not even age, but if your skin has texture, that sparkle that is going to create an area of not just a highlight, but it's gonna it's going to like put lighting on any imperfections on your face. So if your skin is flawless and you want to have fun with it. Absolutely. If you're going to be on Instagram and put a filter on it, absolutely. But if you're a real person going to a party or going to have dinner with your friends, and maybe you have a little texture on your skin, I would think about switching that to a product that doesn't have sparkle. Right. Maybe right. shimmer. Uh, the way you want to do that is, is the way they make these products is that they put the shimmer particles, Right. They can mm-hmm. start as large as glitter. So they're mm-hmm. like, you can see the chunks. So mm-hmm. you can see chunks sitting on the skin. And they do it on the nose, the tip of the nose, you know, to get that little uh, uh, perfect nose. Right. But you, you want to make sure that those sparkles are small. So you want to look for shimmer. You want to put it on your, on your hand and make sure that it glides on almost like a cream, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you want to avoid shimmer altogether, which is totally fine, and I totally recommend it, you might just want to add a little bit of extra uh, moisturizer, maybe a, you know, a tiny bit of a drop of some sort of oil. I was going to say an here. argan oil. You could An argan oil will be beautiful. Or right. mix that with a cream blush or just wear a cream blush, you know? Mm-hmm. Again, uh, Jones wrote, uh, Bobby Brown, I believe, she makes a, I think it's called a miracle balm or balm that you can put on and it creates that, that glow that can translate into a highlight. So, so moral of the story, highlight doesn't have to mean shimmer. Right. Highlight you can use at any time. You are all doing highlighting and contouring of your face the minute that you apply blush because yeah. you're creating a little contrast. So it doesn't have to be something that you're exaggerating. It's also nothing new. I think right. people think that highlighted something new. It's just become more popular. Exactly. Um, exactly. And there's so and many products out there to, exactly. to attempt it with. Yeah. So and, great takeaway here. Wherever yeah. you're putting the highlighter product, it, think of it like a spotlight. Think of it as That's you're right. going to show off that part of your face. So if That's that part right. of your face isn't looking too cute, you may want to reconsider where you're putting that highlighter <laughs> Now we're going to hear from hair expert and guru, Farah Reed. I have known Farah for a really, really long time, and she has been a hairstylist, hair colorist, and expert for more than two decades. And we had a really great time talking about how our hair changes as we age. And we're going to get into all of those details as to what's really going on. And then also, we're going to talk about what products are worth it and what products are not. So take a listen to Farah. Farah, tell us, tell us what you think. Tell us, tell us what's happening with our hair as we age. How does it change and why is it changing? Well, our hair, it comes like how it grows, how it thick, how it curls, all those different things that happen to it. 
hormones have quite a lot to do with it. So it makes sense as time goes on and our hormones start to shift that this happens, this occurs. I mean, we think about being pregnant, our hair gets thicker, we stop breastfeeding, our hair sheds all at once. We have COVID and our hair, my hair shed, a ton of people's hair sheds. We undergo like different certain circumstances that are stressful and our hair begins to shed. Mm-hmm. When we're younger, our hair, our, all of our hair follicles are like little machines, individual machines, and mm-hmm. they're all growing and they have different phases that they grow in. There's three, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so these phases start to change. They start to change through hormones. And as our hormones shift, then our phases shift. And the beautiful thing to remember is that as long as hair is growing out of them, there's hope. Okay. Okay. Even if they're short hairs, they're still growing. The one place where there's not really hope is when it's just shiny there and there's no more hair growing out of theirs. Those are a genetic hair loss. When you have that, it's a genetic hair loss disposition and it's caused by DHT, that hormone. And that one you'll see in like male pattern baldness where their hair is lost at a very young age. It's passed down through the male. And so if you're a woman and your father had that, you'll start to see hair loss around the hairlines like back here. Now, when you see it in somebody who really has that genetic disposition, the hairline goes very far, recedes very far back. You'll see it because um, it will go up into the temple. It's not something that they're self-conscious about. It's something that's very much there. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing to think about. And unfortunately, um, the things that you can do, I mean, minoxidil does help. It does hinder the hair loss process. Absolutely. It never stops it completely, unfortunately, because it is genetic. And tell me what products contain minoxidil. Tell tell me some product types and maybe some brand names if we wanted to research that. Rogaine is like the oldest. Okay. Um, there's new products that are coming out now that can do it. Right now, all the products that we're talking about and that we will talk about, they're all things that won't stop this from happening. Okay. They will just topically do it until you stop using it. So it's one of those things that you're just going to have to keep doing. It's not going to correct the situation forever. It'll just correct it while you're using it. Okay, that is such an important point. And I never hear people say that that if you stop using it, that it's going to stop working. It doesn't, it's not a corrective product. It just, I guess, Im- improves, if you will. Correct. Yes, yes. Okay, interesting, very interesting, because I think that's a key point and why people can probably become disconcerted or frustrated mm-hmm. with a product. And we talk about this in skincare as well. You've got to use it to see the effects. But with minoxidil, you're saying you're going to have to use it forever. Yeah, okay. all, all of them. All of them, anything that's out there, you will have to. I will say that my number one favorite product that I've ever seen work is made by Revitalash. And Revitalash makes this foam. And they can't say that it's going to make your hair grow. Like even when you look at it, they say volume enhancing. They're just not allowed to say that it grows. But Revitalash, the ingredients that are within it, prolong your growth phase. Mm. Because of the three phases that you have in there, the antigen phase is the beginning phase, and that's the growing phase. Mm-hmm. And when your hormones shift, the growing phase starts to shift, and you will have a slower grow-up phase. That's why when you look up at your hairline, all those little hairs are shorter. Instead right. of growing to their full length, it looks like they've broken, or it looks like they've done a variety of different things. But in this case, what it is is they just have a shorter lifespan. 
Okay. So when you use um, the Revitalash hair enhancing volume foam, you massage it just on those spots and you'll notice a difference in about six to eight weeks. Wow, and that's fast. That's pretty fast. You won't notice it at first. So you just got to keep using it. But if you keep using it, and I don't know if you've ever used the eyelash serum, but I have. what's really great about it is it starts to compound. And instead of using it every day, then you use it every other day. Instead of every other day, then you can use it once a week and it keeps it going like that. And so far, um, so far in my experience, that has been, I've seen the best results very fast results that you can achieve. However, it's um, it's kind of like a spot treatment okay. for women and they have a whole head of hair and they're shedding all over their hair. That's why it's not the best choice because we're like, oh my gosh, you got to put this foam all over my hair every single right. day you know, for this amount of time. That can be a little bit frustrating. I personally would not ever put a drugstore product on my hair. There are probably only two that I would choose to use one would be Paul Mitchell. It's straightforward and simple. Um, the other one is, gosh, I don't even know. Maybe a Redken if they sell it there, just because it's been around and it's such. It's also uh, sold in a professional place. So um, the reason why I gasp also is um, anything from the drugstore is going to be point to purchase style products. Right. You are going to get results immediately, but they are not designed for prolonged. Uh, oh boy, this is getting us into a juicy topic here. It is. You know this about skincare. It's exactly the same thing. You wouldn't want them to put on that. It's not. It's the quality of ingredients is hugely different. Okay. They, where they get their products from, you could say dimethicone, which is a, a version of a silicone. There are a myriad of different versions of dimethicone out there. There mm-hmm. are some that are water soluble and there are some that are not. There's a myriad of different versions of oils out there. You have your first press oil and you have the ones that are going down third press, fourth press oil, which means you take the original organic component and they press out the um, the nutrients out of it. And that would be your first press. So first press. Oh my gosh. Would- so you're just taking out all the good stuff, basically. You're taking out all the good stuff. That's Oh, goodness. Press. That's what okay. you want. You want the higher dollar. You want the higher quality ingredients. You're not going to get that from your over-the-counter drugstore product. So let me ask you this question because I've heard this theory with with higher-end products and some, some lower-priced products. What about this non-foaming shampoo concept? Because I know there are a lot of products out there that don't foam, yeah. and I've heard that that's very good, that you know no foaming is acceptable and taking it another step forward, is that something we want to seek out? Is that a preferred type of hair shampoo product? Carolyn, that's an awesome question because that is so current right now. Okay, like the WEN products. Just mm-hmm. to not pick on that brand, but that's one yeah. that I know that's been around for a long time that's a non-foaming. They, they have a good concept. Uh, what I didn't love about it is that it can coat the hair. There are other, there are other ingredients in it that I don't feel that I want on my hair or on my body. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with quality. And that's something that we can discuss about those type of products that kind of get you on through marketing and get mm-hmm. you kind of stuck on their program. Anything that's you're stuck on their program, you kind of want to stay away from. Um, but the cream themselves, and I can go deeper into that, but to answer your question, the cream itself is pretty great because it's gentle. You okay. know, when, when we talk about hair, we're talking about hair and scalp. Those two play a very large part together. And 
uh, pH is a giant thing. It was huge in the 70s and 80s, and everybody kind of forgot about it after a little while. But it's still popular or not, it's still an important um, element for us to understand with our hair. Okay. If we are washing our hair twice a day, we are changing that pH, changing the pH of our scalp, changing the pH of our hair. Our body makes what we don't have. Mm-hmm. If we, so if we are washing all the natural oils off the hair, our body's going to produce more. It will. It's there for a protective agent to support our scalp mostly is what it does. It doesn't care about supporting the hair, but, you know, the bonus is, is if you have your natural oils going on your, on your natural hair, it's going to keep the quality of it uh, more intact. It's going to be stronger. If we're taking all those natural oils off that are, there are amino acids in there as well. That's the building block of hair. You're going Mm -hmm. to want those on your hair. Mm -hmm. So the co-conditioners do, or the co-shampoos, co-wash, is that they are trying to keep your natural oils within that. A lot of people don't really love that so much. They want to feel, I know, I want to feel that. that yeah, really, we, we like that sudsy. Yeah. Sudsy, it's more user-friendly. It moves throughout the hair. When we use suds like that, it goes all over. It does like it makes you feel clean because mm-hmm. you it's, it's luxurious to feel that way. And those over the counter products offer that, you know, they've got a big hole at the top of their, at the top of the spout and you pour it into your hand. It oozes all over your hand. You barely put your hands together. It suds all over the place. You barely put it in your hair. It suds everywhere. It's doing what you're asking it to do. Right. However, the cleansers are way too strong for our hair. That's there. where we get that notion of it's a, too detergenty, if you will. Exactly. That's exactly. Okay. It's a perfect word because it is stripping. Detergent. It's stripping yeah. the hair. And I mean, we all do different things to our hair uh, with hair color and the varieties of different lifestyles that we have. And so if you're stripping it, you're you're not really aiding what you've spent your time and money on if you're going to do that a, a, a very nice color very profe- very well professionally done hair color is just not going to last as long it's just not going to look as pretty you're literally stripping it out and going to be washing it down the drain all that hard work that time Absolutely. all the money that you invested in that beautiful color is just yeah. going to it's so going to go down the drain so when your recommend something they recommend it because they know it works they exactly work uh, in a lot of hair salons to sell a lot of products. And we as consumers don't want that. We want to think for ourselves and we don't want somebody shoving things down our throat. We have the internet in our hands. So we can do our own research. Easily one of our most popular guests has been plastic surgeon, double board certified, Dr. Armand Simone. Dr. Armand Simone has been practicing in New York City for more than 40 years and is a leader in his industry. And we had two episodes talking about surgery, injectables, how to be your own patient advocate, how to ensure you are getting the best provider out there. And in these clips that you're going to hear from both of his visits to Glow and Tell, you're going to hear how to find the best provider. We're going to talk about how long do these injections really last? And what are the questions to ask your doctor when you're considering doing a casual procedure like an injection or something more serious like a surgery. Take a listen. What I would like to hear from you on also before we hit our next break is how how far can we um, push it, so to speak, with our physician um, when it comes to advocacy? Because I feel that there's still this this feeling of 
of the doctor is here and I'm over here and how much can I ask? How much can I really kind of grill this physician, so to speak, without being inappropriate or out of line or um, creating something, heaven forbid, could be contentious? You can ask a physician anything. He's, he's, okay. He is providing you with a service. And as someone who's either potentially purchasing a service, you're entitled to know what you're getting. Okay. And, and, and there should be no ego involved with this. If the ego of a physician is injured by a question or that the fact that he's either que- he or she is either questioned or not necessarily doubted, but just questioned, I, I think you should head for the hills. I think you should take off. You know, a, a good physician, a good plastic surgeon is confident in what how he feels about how he can help a patient. He should field any question. He should welcome any question. And as a matter of fact, what I tell my patients is make a list. Mm-hmm. Write your questions down to be sure that you don't forget to ask them when you come in. I'll try and cover all the material while you're here, but I may miss a, f- a few points here and there. But write your questions down. And there should be no ego involved with this. No physician ego involved with this. They should answer every question. And there's no silly question. There's no question that's unimportant. Okay. I love that. I love that. I appreciate that that message and that sentiment. And I, I do encourage everybody that's listening here that's considering a, a procedure, whether it's as small as, you know, getting your forehead touched up with Dysport or Botox or, you know, multiple um, elective surgeries, Be your own advocate. Ask the questions. Don't be intimidated. Obviously, there needs to be a respectfully, a conversation that's rooted in respect. But I love the idea of making a list and going in with that list. So can Botox or Dysport just stop working? It doesn't just stop working. What it does is that when it reaches the end of its natural half-life, it will gradually not be as effective okay so they do have a lifespan to them for the most part and um we can say that botox has a span of three to four months generally and disport four to six months um and it's just a gradual return and you'll go back to 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 square one for the most part um so there's no quote unquote immunity it's, it's to it. That, it's not that one day you wake up and all of a sudden all the lines are back. It doesn't happen that way. It's it's a very gradual thing, and and actually that's the beauty of some of this stuff because you know it gradually improves and then it gradually disimproves uh, mm-hmm. at the end of its life. And what about a cumulative effect? I've heard that there can be one if you use it for years and years and years. Either you know either one of the neuromodulators. Well, if you, in some patients, if you use it with a certain amount of frequency, so if you use it every six months, you, you may find that you can go longer periods of time in between because you're putting the muscles that are responsible for the wrinkles in a state of atrophy or a state of disuse. And when you don't use your muscles, it takes longer for them to come back. And so you may find that that this chronic state of disuse of forehead muscles or eyebrow muscles where we give this material that you may need it less often over time. Yeah. It's the same thing with fillers, by the way, because fillers provoke a little bit of collagen production. And so your collagen that is, is, is increased in those areas. And so you can actually stretch out a little bit. So we find that patients come back a little less often, the more they use it over time. So let's get into the area of how to find the best provider 
for these injectables, whether it's filler, um, whether it's a neuromodulator or a little bit of both. Because as we all know, there's, it seems like almost everybody, every doctor's office, no matter what type of doctor, what type of physician is offering this at this point. We see Groupons coming across our email that are offering, you know, Botox for, you know, 20 bucks a unit and, you know, Restylane or Juvederm for this amount per, per ounce or, as you said, all, all the different measurements. But all of that, to me, makes me very nervous. Should we, you know, just never consider people that are marketing these injectables in that manner? Um, are there certain practitioners that should and shouldn't be doing it? I know there are dentists that are offering injections. There's, of course, nurse practitioners. It seems it seems like everybody's doing it. How do we weed out who is competent, who is not? You know, th that's a real tough question as, as, as far as competence level is concerned. I think that a, a well-trained plastic surgeon, a well-trained dermatologist are your go-to people for the, this material, okay? Because it, this material, like any other, any other situation in medicine, may have complications associated with it, may have side effects associated with it. And if your provider is not competent to handle those side effects or those uh, complications, you're in the wrong hands. So you have to think through where are you going. Does does a um, uh, does a dentist can a dentist or an internist handle the complications that arise from um, uh, let's say an allergic reaction or whatever or or, or um, a bad effect of of some of these neuromodulators or some of these fillers? And if they're not competent to handle it, I think nurse practitioner. I don't agree that nurse practitioners should be giving it. I don't think they have the proper training in aesthetics. I don't think they have the proper training in anatomy. I mean, this is. Everything we do is based on anatomy and physiology, all right? And you need the people who are well-trained in that. And I think dermatologists and plastic surgeons are the go-to people. Okay. Yeah, and you got to be very careful in, in the cell, the, 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 the cell kind of thing, uh, you know, $20 a unit, $10 a unit. If it's, if it's too cheap to, to be true, it ain't true. You're not going to get. So I have seen patients say they get they've gotten some of these neuromodulators and, you know, they had no effect in four to six weeks. And, wow. and so, you know, because they and, and, and then the attribution is that there's something wrong with the patient rather than something wrong with how or what was given. So right. um, I'd be very leery about that. You know, don't respond to advertising on this stuff. Okay. Okay. That just prompted another thought. So when, when somebody's receiving these injections, this is kind of a two-part question. So number one, how, how quick is the onset with a Botox or a Dysport? And when, when should we kind of ring the alarm that it didn't work, that it didn't take? And then the same with filler. When is, what's the onset period there? And, and, and when do you ring that alarm? Okay, so let's stay with the with the neuromodulators, Botox, Dysport. Uh, Botox, the onset is, is about five days, starts at five days and goes up to 10 days. Dysport starts on two is day two and will continue up to day 10. Generally speaking, by the 10th day, what you see is what you what you get. Unless there's some uh, some some swelling that's associated with the needle injections, et cetera, et cetera, because you can get some swelling, you can get a little blood under the skin, something of that nature. So it's probably prudent to wait a good two to three weeks till you make a final determination of, of the result, okay? 
if the result is not adequate and not strong enough or enough, you can always get a touch up on these things, all right? So sometimes patients will come back and say, well, I still have the wrinkle, so we can give them a little more, all right? Uh, so as far as the fill is a concern, um, with the hyaluronic acids, what you see is what you get. So for the most part, once the initial swelling from the injection period is down, which is usually in five to seven, 10 days, then what you see is, is the result, okay? You can always add to as well. Uh, if you've been given too much, it can also be reduced by the, by the administration of an enzyme that breaks it down. Um, but you, you know, I would say that, you know, 10 days, uh, 10 days, two weeks, your result from fillers is, is, is for the most part, what you should expect. Okay. All right. Now for fillers, you just touched on something that I think is important. Oftentimes there is immediate swelling. Um, let's say you're getting your lips plumped up a little bit or your cheeks or, you know, any nasolabial folds, you, you name it, there is some swelling and it can initially look like the provider has given you too much. It can be a little alarming. What do you suggest for that patient? Do they need to go home and ice? Do they need to massage their bruises? How do you handle that? Because I know that some people really freak out and think that the provider messed up and made me look too artificial. I think I think cold compresses are, are the way to go. Okay, out of the gate, um, and and all the all the fillers should use a day or two of uh, application of cold compresses. Not ice directly on the skin, because you can get an ice burn. But you know, cold compresses uh, two three times a day for 15, 20 minutes will be helpful. Um, and then wait the process and see what happens. I think you should touch if you feel that it's too much. At 10 days, you should talk to the provider about it. Uh, you may have some prolonged swelling that's due to some collection of blood in the areas. You know, our face is very vascular, lots of fine blood vessels. So you can get bruising easily. You can get swelling easily from a little bit of blood that's under the tissues. And so in, in anatomically very refined areas like the lip, a little bit of extra blood under the skin will show. Not necessarily in discoloration, but in in the volume, the look of the volume that you have there. So mm -hmm. you should be, you know, just temper it a little bit and, and wait a, a decent period of time before you, you know, you start speaking to the provider about it. It was such a pleasure to have Dr. Julia Kennedy on the show. She provided such insight and education about what is happening to the inside of our body that absolutely affects the outside, affects the glow that we're all trying to achieve, and certainly affects how we feel. And what we're going to listen to here is what she taught us about insulin resistance and what this does to us on the inside and what it really means to our health and just some really great suggestions about how to move things forward and feel a whole lot better. So let's listen to Dr. Kennedy. But okay. what people should understand is there's this whole cascade of things going on with all kinds of growth factors, changes to blood vessels, all different mechanisms, the way fat is stored in your liver. And when you look at all these things, there are various diseases that are caused by this process of being resistant to insulin, putting sugar where it needs to go. And when sugar is put into those parts of your body, it helps you have energy. That's where mm -hmm. you get your energy stores. Mm -hmm. So you get blood vessel disease, that's heart disease, you get diabetes. 
there's obesity and metabolic syndrome, and there's cancer as well as fatty liver. So a lot of our chronic diseases are because our diet is terrible in general. Now, I'm not saying everyone's diet's terrible, but if we think about it, a lot of what we eat is high calorie, sugar, carbohydrates, um, you know, white bread, potatoes, cookies, cakes, yeah, and not, and some unhealthy fats. And I'm not going to say fats bad because we're learning that there's a lot of healthy, a lot of healthy aspects to good fat. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, we've all been told since you know we were young children, you know, the food pyramid and and eat this and not that. And as we've been chatting over the past week or so, I feel like some of this information. At, at this point, especially as you know, someone in my 50s, it's gone in one ear and out the other. And when I think about a healthy diet, I'm usually focused on, you know, more vanity-based reasons to have a healthful diet so that I'm not, you know, overweight, um, terribly overweight at least. And, you know, I can fit into my clothes, et cetera. But to be very honest, full disclosure, I had no idea that that sugar was that kind of an enemy in terms of, you know, everything you just described. It's a little, it's a little scary. Right. So, I mean, there are a lot of healthy foods that we can enjoy and, you know, beans, legumes, vegetables, you know, this concept of plant-based diet, or I like to call it plant-enhanced diet, where you enhance your daily eating with vegetables, fruits, legumes, beans. I mean, beans is really the healthiest food for longevity. And it's been studied throughout um, the world in various parts of the world where people live very long, healthy lives. That's the mainstay of their diet. And you can still have, you know, lean meats and poultry and fish, and there's benefits to all seeds Mm -hmm. and nuts. But the problem is processed food and fast food has really overtaken our diets in the last 50 years, you know, since the sixties, really. True, true. Tell me about artificial sweeteners and even the ones that seem a little more healthy, a little bit healthier, like the stevias and the monk fruit and things of that nature. Does the body respond to, you know, the the saccharins all the way to the monk fruits in a similar fashion to how it responds to sugar? Tell us about that. It really it really does. I mean, it's a fallacy to think that artificial sweeteners are safe with this insulin resistance mechanism. I mean, the other thing it does is it really heightens your taste for sugar. Mm. And it has a lot of bad effects. Granted, we can sweeten things with uh, probably stevia, maple syrup, some honey. I mean, there are some sweeteners that have less of an effect than that. But to just say, well, I'm just going to drink diet soda. It's like diet soda is not healthy when it comes to this. Again, the reason I want to talk about the insulin resistance this whole concept of sugars not being stored, insulin resistance developing, and then this whole cascade of inflammatory and growth factors, insulin-like growth factor maybe causing some cancer risk, inflammation causing problems with blood vessels, kidneys, arthritis. So the whole it's the whole cascade of this that's responsible. So oh, for, for those of us, those of us that have, let's say, an average diet and, you know, we do indulge here and there sure, and we have our lattes sure, sure. with some sugar. Yes. How, how do we how do we detect what our levels are? What's the best approach to determining where where we are and where we should be? You can have it's not done routinely in medical care right now, okay. but there are fairly simple ways to look at insulin levels, to look at sugar. 
I mean, the, the easiest thing is to start with a fasting blood sugar. I mean, the problem is that one out of two or three people have a degree of insulin resistance. So it's not rare. And wow. again, it's sort of under the surface. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't develop all these diseases because it just happens. It's because, you know, this is how we live. Now, granted, genetics, family history, age are all risk factors. You can't change that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're born to you're born. You have your genetics, but they're not the major determinants. I mean, as we age, insulin resistance is more of an issue, but you can do a lot with lifestyle. That's how you can modify this whole concept of disease and insulin resistance. Now, lifestyle meaning some of the dietary things we talked about, um, exercise, moderate intensity exercise on a regular basis, trying to keep your weight, doesn't have to be ideal, but try to keep your weight at a good range and not a lot of fluctuations. Mm -hmm. The other thing is reduce stress. And of course, we can talk about multiple ways to reduce stress and sleep and different things. Very interesting. I I was actually going to ask some questions about movement, about fitness. And because I know, again, we're all overwhelmed with data, right? We're reading things, we're you know, getting posts shared with us and and I get overwhelmed by all the information out there and oftentimes don't know what is legitimate and what is not. I have read that um, regular exercise, as you suggested, moderate level, decent amounts of cardio can help with how we metabolize sugars or help with sugar levels. Yes. Insula- yes. Is that true? Okay. So particularly, and I will mention for postmenopausal women, you know, we lose estrogen and unfortunately that kind of racks up this insulin resistance problem because okay. estrogen, you know, women, women that say, Oh, I can't eat what I used to eat. My metabolism is getting really bad. It's really because they don't have the insulin and that hormonal milieu in their body that used to take a little piece of that insulin resistance problem and put it at bay. So as far as um, regular exercise, I mean, regular exercise for cancer patients, there's been studies with the American Academy of Sports Medicine, looked at this extremely carefully and said, you know, five hours a week. And I mean, that's daunting for people with active disease that have other problems. So I do tell people walking, any movement is better than sitting. Okay, that was going to be fact, my next question. standing in one place is not as good as walking. So people huh. who say, well, I'm at a standing desk, everything's fine. It's really not extremely, it does not improve your metabolism or your ability to handle sugar and calories or for stress and things as much as just moving and walking. Okay. So, you know, I'm a big believer in like walking meditation, you know, meditate, obviously eyes open walking, you know, just using like doubling up on activities that can help you. Okay. Five hours a week is, well, is five the hours is sort of the guideline for cancer patients. Okay. Now I'm, I think that, you know, doing something on a regular basis is better than hit or miss. So mm-hmm. regularity, consistency is number one. If you can do 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and 10 minutes throughout the day, that's as good as doing 45 minutes at once or 35 minutes at once. The other thing that is really lost, particularly among women, is mm-hmm. resistance and strength training. Mm, so yes. we, lose, we lose 10% of our muscle mass every decade from the age of 30. And 
you need to really work at a younger age to maintain muscle mass because once you hit menopause, your ability to build muscle again through resistance and strength training is much more difficult. So if, again, the first half of our life, if we could kind of maintain that muscle mass, and it's just, you know, it's so important as we age for ability to have bounce and not have falls and all the other things that come with, um, you know, getting much older. Chase Burnett has been a personal trainer and a fitness expert for more than a decade, and he's someone that I've personally worked with for many, many years, and we had a really wonderful time talking with Chase about, you know, how to really take your workouts to the next level in order to achieve better results faster and how to stick with it all. And one thing that we really spent some time about was accountability and how having an accountability partner, as we call it, can really make all the difference in being consistent and getting to your workouts on a regular basis. And we're also going to talk a little bit about food, sugar, and how we can be fueling our body, not just for, you know, the most optimal workout, but in order to get the shape, get the tone, get the health that we want. Take a listen. For sure. Uh, and uh, something just to like touch on just accountability alone, whether that's like your personal trainer that keeps you accountable or just your gym buddy or your spouse, you know, having that accountability is huge. Like I know for me, whether that's the guys that I go train jujitsu with or my lifting buddy, like those people are, I don't want to let them down. You know what I mean? And I, I get upset with myself if I can't make it to one of those appointments that we've, we've set and I feel like I'm letting them down. And, you know, it's nice having those people to, you know, push you to work a little bit harder. I've noticed it in our gym because we do mostly semi-private training mm-hmm. and, you know, I've seen awesome friendships be built and it's been like, Hey, you're, you're lifting this way. You know what? I'm going to try to lift that weight. So it's, it's really, it's really important to have someone that's going to, you know, drive you to your goal. That is exactly what did it for me and what changed my life. It started when I was living in Toronto and I was still in my corporate career. And for the first time, I decided to hire a personal trainer. And so it was the financial investment, which what even wasn't a whole lot of money that got me to the gym. And just knowing that I was going to lose this money and then also let this person down if I wasn't there, it really like a switch was flipped for me. That was the shift. And then when I moved to Pennsylvania and opened Nurture Spa and switched careers, that's when I continued my fitness journey and the accountability buddy system, oh my gosh, the floodgates opened and made some of the closest friends that I will have for the rest of my life who are my friends now. Nancy is one of them. She is somebody, and you know Nancy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she got me up to a 6 a.m. class, I mean, for years, years and years and years. And it's it's really, it's kind of awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping what a partnership and accountability partnership can do for you because it literally shifted everything to me. And I never thought I was this super morning person. I never thought I'd be getting up at 5 a.m. and at the gym ready to go by 6, but something shifted and it was the accountability and I'm truly happy with it and about it and for it. Yeah, for sure. I think if you can find that person that's going to help, you know, be your accountability partner, help you get to the gym, whether it's a 6 a.m. class or a 4.30 p.m. class, or even just like a quick lunch workout session. Mm -hmm. Like if you guys can attack that together, you're probably going to be a lot more successful 
in your fitness, you know, journey. And I don't think that you have to be some crazy, like fitness buff in order to inspire somebody, you know, like my workout buddy right now, he hasn't been lifting for very long, but still just having him there, you know, has helped me immensely. And I've been lifting for, you know, 10 plus years. The goal here, Chase, is we want the real deal. We want you to just, you know, let's just cut through all the muck and tell us, tell us, tell us it straight. So my first question is, if I have too many carbs, I'm going to gain weight. Let's talk about the carb situation. False. False. Yeah, false. Right (laughs) off the bat. I love carbs. Um, And you should love carbs too. I feel like carbs get such a bad rap, but really when it comes down to it, it's just, are you eating more calories than you're burning? Um, And you know, carbs are not the enemy. It, you you need carbs. Carbs fuel our brain. They're going to fuel your muscles for fuel. Um, so we need to have carbohydrates in our diet, but we need to make sure that we're not abusing carbs and there's better carbs for you, right? So things that are going to be low glycemic versus high glycemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, focusing more on the low glycemic carbs, which are going to be more things like potatoes, rices, you know, things like that, that are going to be slow digesting that's going to be a lot better for you in the long run than something that's like pop tarts or, you know, ice cream or those fast digesting sugars that usually will spike your insulin and can cause you to gain more weight. Okay. Yeah. That popcorn, something I love that I think is kind of healthy, like a skinny pop, you know, there's not a lot of fat, there's low calories, but it's not quality. It's not a quality carb. It's not going to satiate me is what you're saying. It's not going to stick with me. Yes, exactly. You know, like, sure, you could get, we'll just say 200 calories from a bag of Skinny Pop, but you could also get 200 calories from, you know, some baked uh, diced red potatoes or, you know, something like that, or even just like a white rice that you've mixed into a stir fry. Something that's going to, you know, be better for you in the long run instead of just like satisfying you in the short term. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Next, next question. Tell us what, tell us the true or false situation on this. I have to do cardio at least four to five times a week to lose any weight. Absolutely false. I mean, it kind of goes back to what we first talked about, right? It needs to be more about like, what are you putting in your body? Um, If you like to do cardio and you just want to do cardio four to five times a week, awesome. As long as your recovery practice is really good and maybe you're mixing in some sort of strength training to complement your running practice, that's fine. But running four to five times a week is not necessarily going to make you any more fit, right? Mm-hmm. It needs to be, it needs to, it all comes down to diet in the end. Okay. Okay. Diet and, and building the muscle mass, like we've talked about. And um, I think that's music to a lot of people's ears that they don't need to do all the cardio. I know you don't do a lot of cardio. No, Intentional really. cardio. Absolutely. I mean, I get cardio kind of built into my training, right? Like I'll do jujitsu three times a week and I'm back into swinging kettlebells and things like that. So that's going to, you know, kind of automatically work my cardiovascular system, but I don't necessarily go out and do a run or anything like that. Um, Running for me is just, you know, it's kind of hard on your body. It's hard on the knees and the ankles and the joints. So if you're not if you haven't been running for a long time, it's kind of like we told Vanessa in Alaska, right? Don't just go out there and start running. Um, there are much better ways you could do it. Like you could hop on a rowing machine, you know, or find a elliptical, something like that. Okay. Barb Steinberg joined our show to talk about teens and their mental health and what is happening with them. 
Barb is a licensed master social worker and a teen life coach and a parent coach out of Austin, Texas. And we had a really, really interesting episode talking about you know, how to talk to your teens, how to get them to trust you, how to improve the communication. We got so much great feedback from our listeners about this episode. So I've pulled a couple great highlights here that are going to really talk about communication, which that's what it's all about at the end of the day. So take a listen to Barb. So the first question that I got here is Tracy from New Jersey. All right. Tracy asks, Barb, how do you build a relationship with your child where they are age appropriately independent, but also know when to come to you with a problem and communicate when something is bothering them? Mm, That's such a great question. And just the fact that this mom is asking that tells me that she's probably already doing a pretty great job. So age, so the question is, how do you build age appropriate connection? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh So so that they come to you when something important they need to share. So yes, it's, it really always starts with the relationship. And as parents, I think sometimes as our kids age, especially in preteen and teenage years, where we get kind of caught up in directing them and telling them what to do and how to be and what they've missed and correcting them. And we feel like we're guiding them and we are, but sometimes it feels like correction and criticism more than it does feel like guidance. That doesn't feel like connection. So we really sometimes have to put that aside and be able to just be with them and in a way that feels good to us and feels good to them. So I love to recommend getting out of the house away from all the responsibilities and doing something that is enjoyable to your child. So whatever that is, you know, I want to go get ice cream or go to my favorite restaurant or go watch a movie that I'm dying to see. And have time where it's just the two of you outside of the house to talk about anything and everything. It's not just about grades and school and projects and responsibilities. So once that's one piece, having that good quality time where you're just enjoying each other. The other piece is that you are also listening about the non-important things. I should say non-important to you, but very important to them. So they might want to go on and on for an hour about what's going on with their friendship, or they might want to talk to you for 45 minutes about the new Harry Styles concert. Maybe that's just me, but they want to talk. These are things that are important to them. And so the more that you kind of are there listening, they're getting the message like, oh, okay, my mom, my dad, they want to listen to me. What I have to say is important, whether it's important to them or not. And so that builds the groundwork for them to come to you when it's, you know, something a little bit more important that they really do need your assistance on. That is that is great, great advice and great input. And it sparked a question in me, Barb. When when your when your teen is um, demonstrating um, a look, a fashion look, um, a makeup look, um, something about their appearance that may be not to your liking. Maybe it's a little, you know, controversial in general, right? Like society would deem it as controversial. Say it's crazy hair color, or maybe your teen daughter is a little too sexy right now, or or I don't know, wacky makeup. Who knows? You were saying, you know, you don't want to, you know, kind of be bossy and be so directive oriented. But how do you? How do you talk about a topic like that? How do you talk about appearance without alienating them relationship-wise? Yeah, so important. You know, teen girls in particular are pretty sensitive to any kind of feedback that we as parents offer, and they hear it as criticism even when we don't 
feel that way and mean it to be. And we're just trying to protect them because we've walked in their shoes, right? We're trying to protect them from ridicule or what have you. Sometimes it's about protecting them because we don't Mm -hmm. want them to get um, feedback or some parents might say a reputation, quote unquote. Some parents, it's really about protecting themselves also. They don't Mm -hmm. want to be seen as a certain kind of parent that is too permissive. So we want Mm -hmm. to be honest with ourselves about that. But that's a really popular question where, you know, especially today where half shirts are in and short shorts are in and all these girls are wearing them and parents are kind of freaking out. Like, really, are you going to wear that when I take you to Target? You're going to school like that. Um, And it can be scary because parents are worried about what is the perception of my child and what what's going to come towards her because of what she's wearing? What kind of attention is she going to get? Right. What are people going to think of her? Blah, blah, blah. So gently, lovingly. I wouldn't say in that moment may not be the best time when she's rushing out the door to go to school, but finding that window of opportunity where she seems a little bit more open to to talk again, maybe it's outside of the house and you're sharing with her, asking her kind of about her style because her style is really important. It's a part of her identity. And then also lovingly, gently sharing concerns like, Hey, you know, my concern is my worry is this, you might not have the same worry and that's okay. I wonder if there's a compromise here. Could you wear that when you're with your friends, when you're at our house and you guys are having a get together at our house, maybe instead of when we go out to dinner or when we go to church or wherever it is. So kind of letting her know that there's a, there are appropriate outfits based on the setting. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm going to wear to church is not what I'm going to wear to dinner Friday night with all my friends, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's, 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 that's a great compromise. I like that. That's a really touchy one because like you said, and we've talked about this so much over the years at this age, kids are trying to individuate and separate from their parents. Right. And you want them to have individual style and it's part of the growth experience and you don't want to, you know, push them further away, which a topic like that certainly can. Oh gosh. Oh, Victoria. Yeah, you've got yeah, a question, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think this kind of goes into a question from a listener. So what about when teens have to start dealing with their friends, right? So this is from Tara from New Jersey. She asks, I'm so worried when my daughter gets to the mean girl phase, coping ideas for how to deal with gals being mean to her or telling her she's too tall, can't tumble that well, or that her hair is weird. I want her to be prepared for all of this, but I also don't want to scare her and take away her innocence at the same time. Mm, Yeah. I love that this mom is saying, I don't want to scare her and take away her innocence because sometimes as parents, we get so worked up about what's being said or done around our kids. We have big reactions and we can kind of project those big feelings onto our kids where they might not even be there yet. Mm. So yeah, that is tough. You know, Obviously, we probably have all experienced people commenting on how we look and how we are, and it's been negative and it's been hurtful. So one start is to check in with your daughter and say, how did it feel when your friend said that, that you're too tall, you can't tell, how did it feel for you? So let her connect with how it feels that gives you a sense of where she is with that and how much it's bothering her or not. So you follow her lead. And then you can maybe even talk about, you know, if it feels appropriate, you can say, well, why do you think somebody might say that to you? What do you think that might be about? She might not have an answer. You want to have an answer in your back pocket. And then you can talk about how to 
potentially not let that in. So how do you feel about how tall you are? Well, the tricky part is, is that's not something that you can really change. So mm-hmm. the more that we think I hate this about myself, the more that we feel badly, right? We feel sad. We feel upset. We feel anger. So then looking, asking her to um, be careful about how can I not let that in? How can I reject that criticism? How can I find things about myself that I am willing to like about myself or appreciate? Do I need to distance from that person that's causing me to not feel good? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Really, really good advice. So this this critical voice that we have in our heads as humans, right? We've got this this voice that's kind of always nagging. As teens, it seems to be louder than ever. Would you say that that parents, caretakers, as adults, that we're ever contributing to that that negative kind of criticism, that inner voice? What role are we playing in this? How can we do better, be better? So the short answer is yes. Sometimes uh, unknowingly and sometimes knowingly, we are contributing to that critical voice. Um, sometimes it has to do with how we were parented. If we were parented by parents kind of top down, feeling like I, in order to motivate you and get you to be and do what I want you to, I need to come down hard and criticize you to motivate you. That's not a motivator. That just creates fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you might get a result, but you're not going to get a good relationship. And if you have a strong-willed child, you might not get a result. So I just wanted to take a second and thank everybody for listening to Glow and Tell this season. Be sure to check out the full episodes from all our guests over the past 12 weeks. And be sure to send us a message at glowandtell.net. Let me know any questions that you may have about what we've talked about this season. Let me know your thoughts about what you'd like to hear from in the future. Take care of yourselves. Be well. And you'll be hearing from us soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Glow and Tell. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. Didn't get your question in? Be sure to call in again next week. We wish you a wonderful week.